as a, a body of Christ, as Lutheran Christian believers, when we remember that basically our theme verse would be that from chapter 2 of Ephesians, for it is by grace you have been saved, this is not of yourselves, it is the very gift of God. It's not surprising then to some extent that you know, we have some reservations or hesitation to fully uh, accept or to wrestle even with the words and the teaching that James challenged his writers then and that he challenges us with today. Now I did just say as James challenges us, but let me remind you of this and I will remind myself with it as well, but these are the words of the Lord. Because we do still accept that the whole Scripture is the very inerrant Word of God, inspired with Him, God-breathed. doesn't mean we always like it, <laughs> but it is God's wonderful, true Word. And His desire as our loving Father who has given us that Word is that we would hear it, receive it, and then as Luther wrote, inwardly digest it truly making it our own. May he do that as we walk together in these next uh, four weeks today, included in that, in this reflection and study on faith and works. So if you are going to write a letter and leave final instructions to your family, what would you write? I've had a cause, of course, of late uh, to reflect a little bit upon that as we have looked at our Father's will or His trust, as we considered other documents and things and what has been written, as His financial advisor and friend of many years shared with us His intent and what was on not only my father's heart, but our mother's heart, and the reason they did what they did. So the question again is, what would you write if you were leaving final instructions to those that you would no longer be with? What would you tell them? Well, in a sense, that's how maybe we need to approach or consider this letter of James. He is writing to members of his church who, because of the persecution that was happening locally, had been scattered throughout cities in the region. Things got that severe. And he had seen them grow in their grace and their love and their faith in God. He had seen them become these beautiful witnesses for Jesus Christ. But then, one day, there is something that unexpected happened. I mean, things were going well. He was discipling those that were you know, coming to the church and coming to faith. But one of the most promising young men in James's church, a man named Stephen, full of passion, wisdom, and truth, debated about Jesus with a group of Jewish men. His opponents, they started a riot. They seized Stephen, and they stoned him to death. 
From that point forward, a great uh, persecution began or arose against those new Christians. Many of James's congregation went north to other Roman cities where uh, the Jewish-Christian debate was far less significant. And in those cities, they could actively live as Christ followers and continue to tell others about Jesus. Yet, James knew that there they would indeed be in places where they would be amongst the minority. There are very few Christians out in those areas. And so with that reality, he knew the challenges they would face. He knew that they would be persecuted further. He knew that they would be challenged in what they believed and what they did. And hence he wrote this letter. He wrote this letter to encourage them and to challenge them that they would continue to live as those faithful followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. He wrote to them knowing that because of the persecution, this might be one of his very last, if not his last, opportunity to communicate with them. And so essentially, this is his final word. If you really keep the royal law, and now the royal law there is that law of love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So he goes on. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. And by doing that, you are doing right. For some who have experienced God's love, this is simple instruction enough. We understand, we've experienced, and we truly know what He has done for us. And just this reminder is enough to encourage us to keep on living in that love and sharing that love. Well, the people who've experienced that and know that, they take the opportunities to love. But James knows that these people just need a little encouragement. Keep loving. But he also reminds them that love has no boundaries. But if you show favoritism, as many of the translations say here, if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law. Right away, he's getting at it. Love everyone. James reminds his readers of the essence of love, especially God's love. You see, God's love isn't limited to other Christians or to the rich or to a certain race or ethnicity. God's love is for all, and he calls his followers to be poised to love all people equally. After all, it's how God loves us. No matter who we are, no matter our background, no matter our race, no matter our gender, no matter where we've been, no matter what we've done, He loves us. And the same God who loves each and every one of us unconditionally, He calls us to love one another. 
So James describes how God's love is limitless. How it inspires and it motivates then our love. So, here's a question for you. How's your love life? Isn't it strange how our cultural context can take a simple question like that and we hear it a certain way? We hear it about, you know, how's your relationship between you and a spouse or someone who's got a special place in your life, but that is not what I'm asking about. It's also not what the Lord's trying to get at here. How's your love life? How's your love of God? And how is your love towards others? Again, here, verses 14 through 18 of our reading. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. Here, James is setting the stage where two people stand. Both of them claim to have faith, but one's person faith leads him to love actively as Christ's witness, while the other person is unresponsive. I don't know, let me give you a few other ways or analogies that maybe sometimes it shows up. Pew sitters, people who, you know, they go to church, but their faith seems to be uh, segregated from and separated from the rest of their lives. They say one thing, they do another. By the way, while I use that pronoun they, we can be the they, right? You and me. At times maybe this is uh, you and I, where we fall and, or where we stumble, maybe, is a more accurate description. But James asks, which person is living as Christ's witness? Which person's faith is alive? Hear that word? Alive. Friends, God has created faith in us by His Holy Spirit. As the waters of baptism flowed over our head and God's Word penetrated our hearts, we were filled with faith. Faith in Jesus' perfect life, His holy innocent suffering and death, and His glorious resurrection. Faith that when He said the words, it is finished, and breathed His last, He won salvation and forgiveness for the entire world. Faith that those waters of baptism deliver God's promises personally to you and me. And faith that in and of itself is enough to guarantee our eternal relationship with God. You and I, we don't need to do anything else 
to earn God's favor. But understand this. When we were baptized into Christ, God filled us with something else as well. His love, His compassion, and His will to act. Consider Paul's writing to the Church of Rome in chapter 6 where he says, Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. We were baptized in order to live a new life. A life of faith-based God-inspired love. In other words, the faith God put in our hearts yearns to act and move and respond to needs and speaks about God's amazing grace. The Apostle Paul wrote this to the church of Corinth. I made reference to it somewhere already this morning, but Paul's words to the Corinthian church when he says, Christ's love compels us. Basically, we can't help ourselves. We can't help but speak of what He has done for us. We can't help but tell others about how He has taken our place, suffered and died, and been raised again for our sins to give us life eternal. And that He's done it for them as well. Christ's love compels us. And James in his book essentially asks, how can anyone's faith not act in love? In fact, our faith should be ready to act at any moment to help anyone. That's hard to grasp, isn't it? We like to pick and choose. We, I, sometimes like to say, I can only help so many And so we become selective. We begin to justify our behavior, our inaction, or who we help and who we don't help. But again, how can anyone's faith not act in love? By contrast, an unresponsive faith is really no faith at all. It's interesting that in my ministry, I have spent uh, uh, a majority of my time either in congregations or with people who are seasoned. I don't like the word seasoned, senior citizens. But even uh, in St. Louis during my field work or in my vicarage down in Venice, Florida, the number of people who were elderly, and I mean that where they were homebound, they were in nursing homes, they were cared for by others. And early on, a couple of them would say something like, but pastor, 
I can't do anything anymore for the church. Now, first of all, the church is not the institution. The church is the body of Christ. And one of my hopes is when I hear or observe that's happening is to help people see the ways that they can still serve. Is it daily praying over the membership list? Is it praying over the leaders of our nation? Is it writing words of encouragement in a card? There are a number of ways to help them to see that they can still serve and demonstrate their faith and bless others. So, how's your love life? Now again, verses 1-4. through four. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting, worship, wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy clothes also comes in. If you show favoritism to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, Say to the poor man, you stand here or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Here James gets even more specific with the example of what love looks like. Love does not play favorites. When visitors show up at the door to worship, whether rich or poor, whether handsome or homely, whether young or old, and for that matter, whether Christian or non-Christian, we are to welcome them in the same way you would welcome Christ Himself. With open arms, with love, with joy. For Christ welcomes all in this way. He welcomes us as forgiven sinners in need of the reassurance of His forgiveness, grace, and love. Indeed, Christ opens doors to us and to all people. So how's your love life? How are you doing at loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? And how are you doing at loving all of your neighbors as yourself? The courtesy, the compassion, the love, the graciousness Christ extends, it should stand as the very mark of this this church, of His church. We don't play favorites here. All are welcome. All are sinners. And by God's grace alone, all are forgiven. All are free to receive the love of God. All are free to love God and to live for Him. So the question. Faith or works? Yes. Amen.